I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 13, The New Print Culture. Why should old men be preferred to their juniors now that it is possible for the young by diligent study to acquire the same knowledge? Jacobo Filippo Foresti, Supplementum Chronicarum. 1483. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Consider the cultural impact of the internet, social media, and digitization over the last 30 years. Me doing this podcast is symbolic of the communication revolution that has occurred. Ebooks can be produced and distributed at a much lower cost than print material. There are new ways of creating content, new formats, and new techniques. Condensing ideas into 140 characters, for example. Or apps like Instagram and Snapchat symbolize a shift from the written to the visual as a means of telling a story. There have emerged new skills and new occupations. The workplace has been reinvented and new means of collaboration have developed between creators and their audiences. The rise of self-publishing, content creators and influencers, and personal branding. There is greater access to information wherein anyone could be an expert. Just watch a YouTube video, listen to a podcast, or join a forum of people on Facebook. There is a wider dissemination of information Books, technical manuals, and other printed texts are no longer hidden away in libraries or special repositories, but can be accessed anywhere. There is a broader audience for new material. On the downside, there is amplification and reinforcement of misinformation, stereotypes, and propaganda. These trends are not new or confined to the digital age. We can discuss these same themes in looking at the shift from the culture of the manuscript to the new culture of the printed word that occurred in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Printing created new occupations, introduced new techniques and equipment, and developed new kinds of workplaces. Trade networks were expanded as printers sought new markets. Unknown in the first half of the 15th century, printer workshops would be found in every major municipal center by the end of the century. Already by the 1460s, less than a decade after Gutenberg introduced the printing press, printer workshops were starting to expand to urban centers beyond the Rhineland. Was this a change in the means of production, or was it a media revolution? 
or as historian Will Durant described, a typographical revolution? Or was it simply a shift from script to print? Or was it indeed a communications revolution? However one might describe it, it was not a single thing. It was a series of interrelated changes that happened more or less simultaneously. In this episode, I will highlight some of the significant cultural changes as printing developed in the late 15th century. For this, I lean heavily on Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, Communications and Cultural Transformations in Early Modern Europe. The most visible change was in the number of books now available. There was an increase in output and a drastic reduction in the man hours required to produce a book. In 1483, the Ripoli Press at the convent of San Jacobo in Florence sold Marsilio Ficino's translation of Plato's dialogues for three florins per quinterno, or five folded sheets of paper. A scribe would have charged one florin, but the scribe would only produce one copy. The press made 1,025 copies. So it was a matter of scale. Scribes were great at copying documents such as edicts and papal bulls. And in rare cases, a sufficient number of texts, such as the Bible, could be produced. But this was a monumental effort, and often resources were diverted from other essential tasks. The survival of a text depended a lot on interest among scholars. Many scholars acted as their own scribes, and this opened the way for the existence of unique texts, and any number of variants could exist for more popular works. It was rare to have identical copies of a text. And this was a particular problem for technical texts. The difficulty in copying these meant they could not be farmed out. This meant scholars did their own copying of the tables, diagrams, and specialty terms. Printing created a new situation. For example, printing allowed the creation of whole sets of astronomical tables, which were generally free from transcription errors. This allowed scholars more time for actual observation and research. Initially, early printers did try to recreate manuscripts faithfully. The manuscript in front of the printer determined the kinds of letters, the selection of initials and decorations, and the length and width of columns, for instance. Alongside this, scribes, on their part, copied several printed works. But things would diverge quickly as printers made use of newer features. Peter Schoffer, the printer, did things very differently from Peter Schoffer, the scribe. The scribe was focused on surface appearance, yet new procedures 
were required to provide instructions to typesetters and compositors. This meant manuscripts needed to be reviewed in a new way. More editing, more corrections, and more collating than for a hand copied to text. Due to this, printers moved away from loyalty to scribal traditions and toward the reader's needs. From the start, printing was a highly competitive commercial activity. It encouraged innovations. Anything that would make a particular printer's book edition stand out to a potential buyer. They experimented with graduated type, footnotes, tables of contents, superior figures, and cross-references. Title pages made it easy to create book lists and catalogs, and they could serve as advertisements. Hand-drawn illustrations gave way to woodcuts and engravings. This would revolutionize technical literature. For the first time, repeatable visual aids were feasible. These two techniques, typography for text and xylography for illustrations, were interconnected, ending the need for scribes and illuminators. Printed book allowed for new forms of interplay between the diverse elements of text, numbers, and pictures. Preparing copy and illustrations led to reconfiguring the routines and art of bookmaking. New occupational skills, such as typefounding and press work, emerged. Older, traditional skills were gathered together into one shop. In the age of manuscripts, bookmaking occurred in diverse places. You had stationers and lay copyists. Illuminators and miniaturists had their special workshops. Goldsmiths and leather workers were associated with their guilds. Monks and lay brothers labored in scriptoria. Clerks and secretaries in secular and ecclesiastical courts. And some acted as their own publishers. And different parts of the process could be carried out in separate places. With print shops, there came a new type of structure. There was closer contact among the varied skills required to produce a book. There was a breakdown of traditional divisions of labor, creating new ways of coordinating work. Former priests and university professors acted as editors and came in direct contact with metalworkers or mechanics. There was a collaboration between astronomers and engravers, physicians and painters, and merchants and scholars. The master printer stood at the head and bridged all these worlds. He obtained the money, the labor, the supplies, and he developed the production schedules, coped with striking workers, studied the book markets, maintained relationships with local officials, and acted as a promoter of artists and authors. He was a person of influence and his workshop was a cultural center.
It was both a meeting place and a message center. Aldus Metius, the influential Venetian printer, had 30 members in his household. It was a, quote, mixture of the sweatshop, the boarding house, and the research institute, end quote. Before 1450, the book trade was primarily retail. Now there was a shift toward wholesale book selling. The trade in printed books started by following the same networks as manuscripts. Yet it became clear early on that there needed to be new distribution outlets. Handbills, circulars, catalogs, and books themselves were carried down the Rhine, across the Elbe, west to Paris, and south to Switzerland. Book production moved from a university town or monastery to commercial urban centers. New networks and fairs arose. The printer Peter Schoffer helped launch the annual book fair in Frankfurt, Germany. By the end of the century, he had established a far-flung sales organization. And the officials in the courts of Europe were now also potential customers. Printers fought for commissions to print ordinances, edicts, bulls, indulgences, broadsides, and tracts. To compete, printers needed to offer better products. They advertised more readable texts, more complete and better arranged indexes, and more careful proofreading. Competition and commercialism weren't unheard of before printing, but the need to recoup investments, pay off creditors, use paper supplies, and keep workers employed required something different. The manuscript book dealer didn't need to worry about idle machines and striking pressmen. This meant that printers needed to be self-promoters. Printers were their own publicists. The firm's name and address were placed on the front pages. The title page became the reverse of the colophon, and printers extended this promotion to authors and artists, helping to create a celebrity culture. Printers sought larger markets for themselves and profited from the expansion of other enterprises. Even though literacy rates for the period are hard to establish, we can see a change in how people learn. In the medieval period, there was a reliance on apprenticeship, oral communication, and special memory devices. Printing made the transmission of written information more efficient. Anyone could learn if they knew how to read. Not only craftsmen, but university students could now go beyond their teachers. There was no need to sit at the master's feet to learn a skill. One could gain mastery on their own. Memory devices in the form of rhyme, cadence, and image were no longer necessary. There was a shift from an image culture to a word culture. 
and there was a change in the preservation of text, both in the purity of the text and in the physical page. Manuscript preservation was dependent upon the demands of local elites or the availability of trained scribes. But text could not be preserved without corruption by copyists. Add to this was the difficulty of preserving the physical copy. Documents were threatened by moisture, vermin, fire, and theft. Information was transmitted by drifting texts and vanishing manuscripts. Though they are written records, manuscripts are not permanent unless they are stored and never used. But parchment is more durable than paper. Durability, though, was not a factor when it came to printing. Preservation in the age of print depended on the abundance of paper. It was preservation through quantity. Preservation was achieved through multiplication and duplication. Aligned with this duplication was that things became codified and fixed in print. Alphabets and language became standardized. There was a rise in the vernacular, an interest in returning to the mother tongue. This, incidentally, would later contribute to the rise of nationalism and the concept of the nation-state. The fixation of texts brought about the idea of copyright and plagiarism. It also meant the amplification of messages, both old and new, both true and false. Printing saw the repetition of identical chapters, verses, quotes, stories. Authors created new ideas alongside old ones. A reader had the chance to encounter ideas more frequently, repeated by different writers. This created a multiplying effect in which a single idea could spread rapidly. This also meant the reinforcement of stereotypes and misconceptions. In her book, Elizabeth Eisenstein remarks that printing brought about the most radical transformation in the conditions of intellectual life in the history of Western civilization. Its effects were sooner or later felt in every department of human life. And perhaps we can state the same for our digital age. We have only scratched the surface of the impact of printing and the growth of print culture. As we progress through the early modern period, we will revisit the importance of printing and explore deeper the impact of this communications revolution as it applies to the various movements that have come to define the modern age. In the meantime, we will take a step back, and in the next episode, we will begin to explore the medieval university and scholastic thought. From there, we will move into the intellectual climate of the Italian Renaissance and the emergence of humanism. I generally strive to produce a podcast episode every two weeks. With the holidays, 
I would not expect the next episode to be available until after the first of the year. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History of My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this content, consider supporting my work by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash itakehistory. Feel free to share this podcast with a fellow history lover. And thanks for listening. Thank you.